Welcome and thank you for standing by. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode throughout the duration of today's conference. As a reminder, today's call is being recorded. Any objections, you may disconnect at this time. Now I'd like to turn over the conference to Jane Harmon, President and CEO of the Wilson Center. Uh, thank you, Operator, and good afternoon to many who are home on the East Coast, but to others who may be uh, dialing in from around the world. Uh, this is uh, the Wilson Center's, uh, the, uh, the first installment of the Wilson Center's telephonic Wilson policy briefs on COVID-19. And um, so you're, you're in at the beginning. We're going to continue this uh, idea through the next weeks. We have no idea how long uh, the center or the world will be on what's basically enhanced telework, uh, but our goal is to keep the Wilson Center open, certainly open virtually, and to make certain that our, our very sophisticated audiences uh, get the information they need from the experts uh, that we have. I'm not surprising anybody by saying that the world is facing an unprecedented crisis brought by a virus just 120 nanometers wide that is small enough to fit nearly 600 uh, across the width of a human hair, but it has caused entire countries to shut down, brought economic challenges unseen since the 2008 uh, financial crisis or maybe since the Great Depression and left U.S. officials scrambling to flatten the curve. Uh, the disease wreaks havoc on the bodies of those who catch it, uh, but it also infects the hearts and minds of all of you, uh, many dear friends of mine on this call, and all of your families. Um, we're all concerned that no one in our family gets sick and that we not get sick, um, but the odds are, based on the fact that the virus is still expanding in the U.S., that we already know someone or we will know people who will get sick. So far, the Wilson uh, staff... Uh, has no one uh, who is sick, but we expect those statistics will change. And that's uh, part of our family, as you are, and we're very concerned. So today we will hear a conversation between two of our unmatched experts in public health. They will explain how the virus is growing, the long-term damage it may cause, and how U.S. and international public health officials are trying to get a handle on it. Uh, one of those participants is my friend of over 50 years, Dr. Larry Altman, who is a global fellow at the center, the New York Times medical correspondent, a clinical professor of medicine at New York University, uh, and has had, as I said, five decades of award-winning medical experience, including time at the U.S., uh, uh, at, including time at CDC. Uh, he set up a uh, measles. Im he helped set up a measles immunization program in West Africa, and then merged that with the WHO World Health Organization's program that eradicated smallpox. Larry went on to become the chief of U.S. Public Health Services Division of <laughs> Epidemiology and Immunization. Good qualifications for what he will talk to us about. He's currently writing a book at the Center on the personal health of American and foreign uh, political leaders, ranging from presidents and heads of state to local officials. Uh, he'll be joined in conversation by our own Sarah Barnes, director of the Center's Maternal Health Initiative. Sarah brings experience from her focus on maternal health, health systems, economics, and populations. She spent much of the past decade living in Bangkok and Beijing, where she evaluated health projects, conducted research, and worked with maternal care and health programs. 
At the center, SARA spearheads the planning and implementation of programs and conferences focused on maternal health, gender, economics, and health systems. Um, please note, as the operator said, that, the, that this conversation will be recorded and will be followed by an off-the-record Q&A segment. Um, uh, I want to thank uh, especially our development crowd, um, Julie Wadler and, and Nora, for uh, putting this together and for inviting some of our best and brightest and for some and inviting some of you who are going to i hope enjoy uh what the wilson center is able is able to do so your phones are muted uh larry and sarah thank you uh both for sharing your thoughts with us today uh and thank you again to all who have joined us um, uh, i have a list of those folks but since i can't see the names of who's actually on the call just know that i'm thinking about you and uh, sending uh, my personal warmest regards. Uh, over to you, Sarah and Larry. Well, thank you, Jane, and good afternoon, Sarah and everyone. Our lives have been upended by a coronavirus that was unknown to science less than three months ago. In that short period, people have inadvertently carried the virus, called SARS-CoV-2, to nearly every country on Earth. The virus causes the infectious disease known as COVID-19. The awkward-sounding names of the virus and disease reflect a recent change in scientific behavior. Researchers have stopped naming microbes for the geographic area where they were discovered to avoid stigma and embarrassment, and because some names were misleading. For example, scientists named a tick-borne infection Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, for the geographical location where they first detected such cases. Yet most such cases occur in the eastern United States. Residents of Coxsackie, a town in New York State, are stuck with the name of a common virus that occurs in many places. Scientists responsible for naming the coronavirus in the current pandemic have refrained from calling it the Wuhan virus or the Chinese virus and worldwide COVID-19 has infected more than 400,000 people and caused 16,211 deaths. Astonishingly, it took 67 days from the first reported case of COVID-19 to reach the first 100,000 cases, then 11 days for the second 100,000 cases, and then four days for the third 100,000 cases according to the World Health Organization and the United Nations sub-agency in Geneva. In the United States, COVID-19 has infected at least 55,000 and killed 737 people, according to CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Men seem to have a slightly higher infection rate than women, but it's too soon to know why. Perhaps it reflects smoking use or occupational hazards from the type of work individuals perform. Although scientists have learned an enormous amount about SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, a huge gap exists between what is known and what is not known about them. In focusing on this gap, I will discuss 11 points concerning the medical and public health aspects of COVID-19. Beware, my 11 represent only a slice of our knowledge about the current pandemic. 
I wish to emphasize that no one knows all the knowns and unknowns because not enough time has passed since scientists began studying the novel virus and the disease it produces. Put simply, we must have patience because it is too soon to collect and analyze the data to know what we need to know. First, I will start with what these statistics do and do not mean. There is an obvious reason for the amazingly rapid seeding of COVID-19 throughout the world. The fact is that we live in the jet age. In it, anyone can travel vast distances from point A to point B faster than the incubation period of many infectious diseases. The incubation period is the time interval from an individual's initial exposure to an infectious agent to the onset of his or her symptoms. We also know that the statistics concerning the number of reported infections and deaths tell us only a fraction of the full story. A main reason is that the numbers represent only those that member countries choose to report to the World Health Organization. What we do not know is the true number of cases and deaths. Educated guesses raise the totals by a multiple of 10 or more. Another important reason for not knowing the true number of cases is that many countries, including the United States, have not performed sufficient numbers of proper tests to detect all of them. We also do not know how many countries have detected cases but have deliberately not reported them to the World Health Organization. Second, let's consider tests. Scientists traditionally rely on two different kinds of tests to provide an accurate panorama and magnitude of an outbreak or pandemic. In the United States, we know we lack sufficient availability of both kinds of tests. They are known as diagnostic and serological tests and have complementary purposes. The diagnostic test identifies the presence of a particular infectious agent during the active phase of illness. That is, while an individual is experiencing symptoms or is unwittingly carrying the agent despite lack of symptoms. For example, this is the test that found Prince Charles and Senator Rand Paul infected with SARS-CoV-2, and, and that found President Trump and Vice President Pence not infected. The other test, the serological one, detects proteins our bodies produce in response to an infectious agent. The proteins are known as antibodies and the antibody detection method is often called a serological test, which can determine whether an individual was ever infected with a particular infectious agent like COVID-19. In clinical medicine, doctors often use both types of tests to determine whether a particular infectious agent is responsible for a patient's current illness. In public health, epidemiologists use the test as a metric for determining the extent of an infection in a defined population. Depending on circumstances, the combination of tests could document that a novel infection like COVID-19 is more widespread than the diagnostic test alone. We know that health facilities in this country do not have adequate amounts of either test. We know that lack of such tests has lost us crucial time. 
time that has allowed the pandemic to explode faster and wider than it would have had we performed the tests on those who needed them earlier. Doctors rely on diagnostic tests in clinics, offices, hospitals, and elsewhere to identify the cause of a patient's infection and then to determine appropriate treatment. We know from federal government officials' promises that hundreds of thousands of such diagnostic tests are on the way. What we do not know is their precise arrival date, whether the tests will be immediately ready for use in everyday medical practice, and how long it will take to learn the results. It takes time before health workers can use serological tests for a novel virus, and there are at least two important reasons for the time lag. The first is that scientists need to develop the test de novo. Second is that it takes a few weeks for the body to produce antibodies in amounts that serological tests can measure. If the infection is recent, the antibody levels will rise over time with convalescence until they reach a peak. So serological tests could be useful in identifying COVID-19 infections in different ways. Surveys of defined populations producing metrics derived from results of the two tests can in turn provide a more accurate determination of the death rate from COVID-19. If such surveys show that many people who had only mild respiratory or gastrointestinal symptoms that they regarded as a cold or GI upset actually had been infected, the death rate would be lower than if the antibody tests showed few people were ever infected. Further, serological surveys could yield details that potentially might help stop transmission of COVID-19. For example, we might learn that higher infection or death rates occurred in polluted areas. If pollution is a strong cofactor in COVID-19, health officials would need to direct greater prevention and treatment efforts to such affected areas. Surveys could account for why some countries seem to have had higher infection rates in certain regions than others. Could weather be an important factor? What we do not know is how many and which laboratories are developing the serological or antibody tests, and why government and health officials have not discussed why it is imperative to use them in overcoming COVID-19. Third, the most vulnerable populations. We know that COVID-19 mostly harms the elderly who have chronic ailments. That makes sense. What we do not understand is why COVID-19 seems to have less impact among the younger age population. We know that many younger people carry the virus, yet have only mild symptoms, even none at all. Medically, that's a mystery because few other infectious agents have an affinity for older people while sparing younger ones. Usually, infectious agents target young people because of their vulnerability from lack of earlier exposure. Examples are the microbes that cause what we once called the usual childhood diseases and that immunizations now prevent if parents cooperate. A striking illustration of the point, most deaths from the 1918 influenza pandemic were people aged from their 20s to 40s. 
We can only conjecture that the phenomenon of fewest serious COVID-19 infections among young people results from the absence of chronic ailments among them, but no one knows that as fact. Some people theorize that young people escape COVID-19 infection because they have never been exposed to a coronavirus. As that reasoning goes, COVID-19 might behave like the dengue virus. First infections from dengue usually produce mild symptoms. However, there are four types of dengue virus, and we know that some individuals who are later infected by one of the three other types of dengue virus than the one that caused the first infection can develop a severe infection, which is also known as breakbone fever. As an extension of this theory, it is possible that many older people are more vulnerable to COVID-19 because of past infections with certain other coronaviruses. We also know that damage from infections can result from a cascade of reactions involving chemicals called cytokines. In other words, an infectious agent can produce a cytokine storm that quickly leads to lung damage, multi-organ failure, and death. If testing shows that substantial numbers of young people who either ignored symptoms or did not experience any were truly infected, we will know that youth fuels the pandemic. That is, it would be a main way of spreading COVID-19. Health and government officials will then have more substantial documentation to take strong action to change the behavior of many young people who defy or deny the potential threat of the pandemic. Young people are not only putting themselves at risk of becoming infected, they also collectively and individually are spreading the infection to others. Persistence of such means of transmission would thwart health officials' efforts to stop the pandemic. Fourth, as to symptoms, we know that sore throat, dry cough, and fever are the main symptoms of early COVID-19 infection. What we know less about are the other symptoms that can be part of COVID-19 infection and that are seldom publicized. For example, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and other gastrointestinal symptoms also occur in COVID-19. However, we do not know how often. That information is important for individuals experiencing such symptoms and health workers caring for them. We know that COVID-19, like SARS, like the first SARS virus, can be transmitted in feces. However, we do not know how often. Obviously, that is important information in taking steps to stop transmission. Further, we know that some COVID-19 infected individuals lose their sense of smell and taste as an early symptom of the infection. Again, we do not know how often that occurs. We also know that loss of such sensations is nonspecific. It occurs in infections caused by other viruses and microbes. And loss of such sensations is usually temporary, but can be permanent. Some leading health officials emphasize that COVID-19 attacks almost exclusively the cells that comprise the lungs and other tissues in the lower respiratory tree. However, that claim does not explain how COVID-19 causes mild upper respiratory infections like the common cold and GI symptoms. 
We need a better understanding and explanation of these links. Fifth, short and long-term damage. We know that secondary bacterial infections like pneumonia can be a complication of influenza and other viral infections. Experts believe that such bacterial infections caused a large percentage of deaths in the 1918 influenza pandemic. We also know that today, bacterial resistance to antibiotics is a huge problem internationally. We do not know whether secondary bacterial infections are a problem in COVID-19. We know that some respiratory infections and pneumonia can produce long-term damage to the lungs and even other body tissues. We do not know if that is true for COVID-19 because too few individuals have recovered and lived long enough to know the answer. Sixth, treatment and prevention. With no proven effective treatments and preventions other than standard hygienic practices, we know that we need to develop effective antiviral drugs and preventives like vaccines. Results from clinical trials of an experimental antiviral drug, remdesivir, may be ready next month. Steps would then be needed to carry out additional studies to bring the drug, which can be given only by injection, to market. Other drugs are undergoing similar clinical trials that are necessary to document their safety and effectiveness. It will take time to learn the results and to market the drugs that prove successful. We know that scientists in the federal government and industry are taking the first steps to develop a vaccine. The tests for safety and effectiveness must be performed in sequence. They take time. The best estimate is that a vaccine could be developed in a year to 18 months. While enthusiastic proponents of such vaccines express optimism, they rarely acknowledge the possibility of failure. We hope the vaccine trials are successful. Nevertheless, experience teaches us that there are no guarantees in medical research. Surprises can pop up when least expected. As a desperate emergency measure to save a patient suffering from a lethal virus, doctors long have resorted to transfusing blood from patients who survived an infection to patients severely ill from the same virus or infection. Blood in such transfusions contain antibodies that has led to a patient's dramatic clinical improvement. However, the technique is fraught with danger. The risk is that the transfused blood can kill because it contains a, a different dangerous microbe. Industry is working to develop this kind of therapy. Seventh, the United States has been woefully prepared for this pandemic. We know that the COVID-19 pandemic should not have come as a surprise. The 1918 pandemic of influenza killed an estimated 30 to 100 million people worldwide making it the worst pandemic in modern history. The numbers must be corrected for the surge in population in the interval. Let us think about 1918 and the First World War. There were no tests for influenza. Some scientists theorized that viruses existed, but none saw them until the development of the electron microscope in the 1930s. Now we know about hundreds of viruses. 
molecular biology, which forms the basis for many standard tests today, was not on the scene in the First World War. Those advances made over the intervening century are what have produced the availability of COVID-19 tests. The terrifying 1918 event has led infectious disease experts and health officials to repeatedly warn that a similar pandemic will occur again. But the experts have emphasized that they do not know which agent would cause it and at what time it would strike. Millions more, like President Woodrow Wilson, for whom our institution is named, were sickened but recovered in that pandemic during the First World War. While COVID-19 has forced us to hunker down in our homes, telecommute, stock up on staples, limit visits to relatives and friends, and disrupt our lives in many other ways, it still is not clear that this pandemic is on a scale of 1918. Only time will tell. However, we are paying a steep price for not heeding the advice that these experts have bugled for decades to prepare for a pandemic scenario. Lack of adequate monetary investment in public health institutions and political will to support them have resulted in state and federal governments being ill-prepared for confronting the COVID-19 pandemic. We face monumental challenges of caring for COVID-19 patients and preventing further expansion of the novel virus. Because nature is hiding many more infectious agents, some likely to emerge in coming years, it is imperative to financially and politically support public health institutions to avert the next pandemic. Eighth, we need to be aware of and prepare for second waves of infection. We have seen a degree of success in quarantines imposed in China. Few new cases are being reported from that populous nation. News reports say industry and business is, slowing, is slowly returning in China, meaning that people are moving about more frequently. That situation raises a critical and worrisome question. Will there be a second wave of infections? Health officials in China and elsewhere are keeping a wary eye for signs of a secondary wave. But there is no way to know if and when it will occur and how well health officials can control it until we monitor infections over the next several weeks. Ninth, accountability. There is little a question that CDC's flawed testing plan cost us crucial time and allowed the pandemic to explode in areas in the United States. Any flaw of that magnitude demands a full independent investigation with the aim to prevent similar errors from occurring now or in the future, not as an exercise in finger-pointing and passing blame. Government officials have held what are popularly known as tabletop exercises to plan for emergencies like pandemics, as I see it, these officials viewed the tabletop exercises as sufficient preparation for such events, when in reality, they should have been only the start of a multi-step process to ensure their implementation. While my impression may be inaccurate, from what I have heard from those who have participated in them, is that they went home satisfied that they were preparing well. 
I can't remember any participant telling me what they did to take the next steps in further developing the tabletop exercises. I stand to be corrected if participants can provide concrete examples of effective follow-through. A number of government officials are boasting about how they scurried and were successful in finding sources for needed equipment like masks and ventilators in short supply for COVID-19 patients. They also seek credit for innovative ways to safely reuse protective equipment and ventilators. Of course, it's good that such efforts are underway, but it is a disgrace that the same and other government officials fail to have well-rehearsed plans ready for immediate implementation when an epidemic or pandemic struck. Why did they do the tabletop exercises in the first place? Tenth, human interdependence. COVID-19 has reinforced the cliche that infectious agents are no no political boundaries, a fact that reinforces our human interdependency. A critical link in our interdependency is the need for accurate communication between government and health officials and the public. Yet flawed communications and a breakdown in communications in recent weeks have created confusion. Notably, CDC stopped its daily press conferences without explanation at the beginning of this month, March. Perhaps the move was defensive because of the problems the federal agency encountered with its testing procedures. If so, the absence of communications further damages CDC's reputation. Perhaps the communication freeze is because the Trump administration wants to control the information politically from the White House. If so, that action deprives the public of learning more about the whys and why nots concerning important scientific questions the agency is charged with answering. Eleventh, in closing, let me take note of questions that some government officials and members of the private sector are raising. Their concerns are whether measures being taken to stop the pandemic are unnecessarily harsh and have led sectors of the economy to sputter, if not halt. These are legitimate questions, but given the current environment, largely created by a failure of preparation and early intervention, my medical training and experience makes me come down on the side of the need for harsh measures we must recognize that the situation is fluid and demands daily assessment, as well as preparation for a long haul. I hope my remarks have been helpful. Thank you, and I look forward to what yours have to say, Sarah. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Altman, for your remarks and wisdom, and thank you also to Congresswoman Harmon for your introduction. Dr. Altman, you're a hard act to follow, but I will do my best. Um, as Congresswoman Harmon mentioned, I lead the Maternal Health Initiative at the Wilson Center, and we really focus on decreasing maternal deaths globally, as well as look at issues of global health and gender through public forums and research. So how I fit into this conversation is related to these areas, and today I really want to speak just briefly about the COVID-19 pandemic as it relates to gender equality, pregnancy, and the female-led healthcare workforce. So let's start with gender equality. 
gender is simply the range of characteristics pertaining to and differentiating between masculinity on one side and femininity on the other. And for this discussion, I'm mostly just talking about gender as it relates to social structures and gender norms within a society. At this point, it is well documented that disease outbreaks affect women and men differently. Pandemics make existing gender inequalities for women and girls worse and can impact how they receive treatment and care. Purely as a physical illness, and as Dr. Altman mentioned, the coronavirus appears to affect women less severely than men at this time. But in the past several days, a conversation about the pandemic has really broadened, and we're not just living through a public health crisis, but also an economic one. So as far as women in work, during this pandemic, gender experts predict that women's independence will be a silent victim, possibly putting women's achievements and our advancements back decades. As of the current moment, normal life is suspended for three months or more, making job losses inevitable. As of Monday, in my state of Virginia, Governor Northam said that they've already received more than 40,000 applications for unemployment insurance in Virginia alone. At the same time, school closures and household isolation are moving the work of caring for children from the paid economy, such as nurseries or schools or babysitters, to the unpaid ones. So the coronavirus is bringing back to the surface the age-old struggle between dual earner couples of who will work and who will take care of the children. In recent times, primarily in the developed world, often both parents could work because someone else is looking after our children. Now couples will have to decide which one of them takes the hit. I think the West can also look to history for proof of gender burdens during crises. Academics who study the Ebola crisis um, and Zika and the outbreaks of SARS, swine flu, and bird flu have found that they had deep, long-lasting effects on gender equality. It was found that while everyone's income was affected by the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, men's income returned to what they had made pre-outbreak much faster than women's income. Today, the corona pandemic could exact a significant toll on women's livelihoods, considering both the increase in the burden of domestic care that typically falls to women, and as travel restrictions affect service industries and informal labor, this will also um, really impact female workers since women primarily work in these roles. So as we study this disease, and indeed many people will, and its consequences, we need accurate and complete sex disaggregated data to understand whether and how women and men experience infection, complication, and death risk differently. And we'll also need to see how men and women's independence and economics have been affected. The pandemic also um, gives rise often to threats that go beyond the risk of infection and economics. Evidence from previous disease outbreaks reveal that women and girls face particular vulnerabilities during times of crisis. So epidemics and their associated stresses can increase the risk of domestic abuse and other forms of gender-based violence. The economic effects of the Ebola outbreak, for example, led to exasperated sexual exploitation risks for women and for children, and it has been well documented that it also increased a rate of domestic violence. Today, as families face heightened tensions, financial uncertainties, and other pressures, women and girls face intensified vulnerabilities. On Monday, again during um, Governor Northam's address to Virginia, he did address the increased risk of depression, alcohol abuse, and domestic violence that are expected here in the U.S. and Virginia specifically during this time of heightened anxiety, stress, 
social isolation, staying at home, and the loss of income. So now I want to turn to something that is really at the center of our mission at the Maternal Health Initiative, and that is pregnancy, and to look at pregnancy during the pandemic. So it's always important to ensure that all pregnant women um, get the care that they need. And during this time, women with a suspected, probable, or confirmed COVID-19 infection really need to continue to have access to their full range of services. So infection control measures must be taken to protect women during their necessary prenatal, neonatal, and postnatal appointments. And of course, pregnant women with respiratory illnesses must be treated with the utmost priority due to increased risk of adverse outcomes for both the mother and the unborn child. So here is what we know and don't know from the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Regarding the risk of pregnant women of getting COVID-19, the CDC currently does not know if pregnant women have a greater chance of getting sick from COVID-19 than the general public, nor whether they are more likely to have a serious illness as a result. With viruses from the same family as COVID-19 and other viral respiratory infections, such as influenza, pregnant women have had a higher risk of developing severe illness. Um, at this time, pregnant women are advised to do the same things as the general public to avoid infection, primarily covering your cough, staying away from sick people, and washing hands. Um, another question is really around whether COVID-19 can be passed from a pregnant woman to the fetus or newborn. And the CDC, again, does not know if a pregnant woman with COVID-19 can pass the coronavirus to her fetus or baby during pregnancy or delivery. And to this point, no infants born to mothers with COVID-19 have tested positive for the COVID-19 virus. In these cases, which are a very small number, the virus was not found in samples of amniotic fluid or in breast milk. Um, and specific guidance on breastfeeding is, again, very limited due to the small number of women who have had this experience. So there's also the prioritization of services. Um, sexual and reproductive health services and commodities are often overlooked in times of crisis, yet women continue to require family planning and maternal health care. Already countries have been seeing that their health systems have been forced to allocate staff and resources towards critical care services and away from other areas of care. During the Zika outbreak in 2015-2016, women faced significant barriers to healthcare due to a lack of decision-making over their health needs, inadequate access to health services, and insufficient financial resources. Also, school closures affected girls' life chances because many dropped out after the schools were closed, and, and subsequently there was also a large rise in teenage pregnancy, which exasperated this trend of women staying out of school. And um, also during the Zika outbreak, more women died in childbirth because resources were diverted elsewhere. During a pandemic, everything goes towards the outbreak and things that aren't priorities can get canceled. Um, and that can have a great effect on maternal and infant mortality rates globally. So the last piece of my talk is really about women at the front lines of, as healthcare providers. So women um, may face heightened risk of exposure to COVID-19 during their due to their disproportional representation among healthcare and social service personnel. So I'm talking about like midwives, nurses, or community health workers, and these are roles that place them on the front lines of any disease outbreak. Around the world, around 70% of health and social service workers are women, and 90% of nurses are women. During the Ebola outbreak, women were more likely to be infected due to their predominant roles as caretakers and health workers. 
So again, I think it's always useful to look to other countries to learn from their successes. So a quick look at what they're doing in Singapore that has been very successful to keep their healthcare workers safe. Um, right now in Singapore, all healthcare workers are expected to wear regular surgical masks for all patient interactions to use gloves and proper hand hygiene and to disinfect all, service, all surfaces between patient consults. Patients with suspicious symptoms or exposures um, are separated from the rest of the patient population and treated whenever possible in separate respiratory wards and clinics, in separate locations, and with separate teams. Social distancing is practiced within clinics and hospitals, so waiting room chairs are placed six feet apart, direct interactions among staff members are conducted at a distance, and even healthcare workers and patients stay six feet apart except during examinations. Um, what's really interesting is actually what they're not doing um, that I think we can also learn for. Is that, and the, one of the primary things is that, is that they reserve the usage of the N95 masks. And you've probably seen some language about this and writing about them. And they're a uh, higher quality with a better fit and protection than other um, face masks. So they reserve those. And they also reserve face protectors, goggles, and gowns for procedures of a heightened risk um, or if someone is known to have a case of um, being infected with COVID-19. Um, their quarantine policies are also a bit more nuanced. So if someone unexpectedly tests positive, like a hospital worker, they don't shut the whole place down or put everyone under home, home quarantine. They do their best to trace every contact and then of the person who became infected and then quarantine only those who had close contact with the infected person. So in Singapore, close contact means 30 minutes at a distance of less than six feet and without the use of a surgical mask. In Hong Kong, just for a comparison, close contact means 15 minutes. Um, so this can vary between countries. Um, and then if the exposure is shorter than that prescribed limit, but closer to six, than six feet together, workers can stay on the job if they wear a surgical mask and have twice daily temperature checks. People who have only had a brief incidental contact are asked to just monitor the themselves for symptoms. And Singapore so far appears not to have had a single recorded healthcare-related transmission of the coronavirus, despite the hundreds of case cases that its medical system has had to deal with. Um, the fact that these measures that I've just mentioned have succeeded in flattening the COVID-19 curve carries some hopeful implications. And one is that the coronavirus, even though it appears to possibly be more contagious than the flu, can still be managed by the standard public health playbook, which is, includes social distancing, basic hand hygiene and cleaning, targeted isolation and quarantine of the ill and those with high-risk exposure, a surge in healthcare capacity, so that supplies, testing, personnel, and wards, and coordinated, unified public communications with clear, transparent, up-to-date guidelines and data. So in closing, to help tackle these issues of gender equality, pregnancy, and frontline healthcare providers, and all really all COVID-19-related concerns, it's important that women's perspectives be included in pandemic planning. Women need to be at the table for any decision-making and policy-making. Thank you very much for your time.